the hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on the Near East, South Asia, Central Asia, and Counterterrorism will come to order. Uh, I'm going to uh, note in advance that given the fact that there are votes being undertaken right now on the floor, we're going to uh, stay here for probably 15 minutes or so, maybe 20 minutes. Then we're going to run down. I think probably all of us uh, will take a short break. We'll run down and vote on two different uh, matters and then come back for the, um, the next run. <laughs> um, the focus of today's hearing is to assess the implications of the protest movements in Lebanon and Iraq and to understand the impact of these on U.S. policy in each of these countries. I want to thank our witness, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Joey Hood, for being here today. I note that Senator Murphy and I had the pleasure of uh, spending some time uh, with Mr. Hood when we were in Iraq in, uh, in the spring. Uh, his, uh, um, uh, his perspectives and understanding of the region were, uh, were most impressive. Both Iraq uh, and Lebanon are geographically significant from a regional security perspective. They also face similar challenges. They're fragile democracies. They have faltering domestic economies. And there are increasing efforts by Iran and Iranian-backed groups to gain greater influence over their respective governments and civil societies. Both countries are currently engaged in protests with civilians decrying corruption, high employment, unemployment, and what they perceive as Iranian intervention. The current situation in Lebanon poses complex challenges for our involvement there. Hezbollah is a terrorist organization, yet the Iranian-backed group and its allies hold seats in parliament and control ministerial positions. This is the same group that bombed the U.S. Embassy in Beirut, the Marine Barracks in 1983, and regularly targets our ally, Israel. They now control parts of southern Lebanon as well as neighborhoods in Beirut. Lebanon is on the brink of financial ruin. People are prohibited from withdrawing more than a few hundred dollars a week from their banks. Corruption is rampant. Protesters are demanding government resignations and reforms. The country will exhaust its currency reserves by February and could face currency devaluation or default on its debt obligations if it doesn't receive foreign funding soon. CEDRA has pledged $11 billion in funds to Lebanon, but these funds are contingent on government reforms. Prime Minister Hariri resigned in October, and President Aoun is now only starting to form a new government. The U.S. is to provide military aid to the Lebanese Armed Forces, but the administration had previously placed that aid on hold. I'm glad the aid has now been released. I know that the subcommittee will be interested in hearing the reasons for the delay in that funding. The Iraqi protests are similarly significant, recently resulting in the Prime Minister's resignation. Iraq faces major security and economic challenges, among them how to build an independent and unified nation, how to sustain an economy whether and how to assimilate returning ISIS fighters and how to counter excessive Iranian influence. What happens there matters greatly for regional security interests. And any mention of Iraq must, of course, be accompanied with a recognition and honor and respect for the 4,565 American service members who gave their lives in that country. Mr. Hood, I hope that you can help us have a better understanding of the intent of the protest movements and the related economic factors and the position the protesters are taking regarding Hezbollah and the Iranian-backed militias. I'd also appreciate your take on the, pro the professionalism, professionalism of the Lebanese armed forces and whether it has the support of the Lebanese people, whether it can counter Hezbollah and the state of U.S. aid for the Lebanese armed forces. 
And finally, the implications of these situations for U.S. national security interests in the Middle East is most interesting and important. Increasing instability in both countries would have serious repercussions throughout the region, and the U.S. must have an effective strategy on how best to partner with these nations to support our mutual interests. And with that, I'll turn the time over to Senator Murphy for his remarks. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Hood. Very good to see you again um, after our visit to Baghdad earlier this year. Um, listen, let's face the obvious. Everywhere we look in the Middle East today, we are seeing easily avoidable mistakes by the president and his team that are weakening our allies, increasing the threat of attack against the United States, and abandoning our allies. To the extent there is a common thread to the president's actions in the regions, it is a myopic but often counterproductive focus on Iran. Uh, but because of this obsession, uh, seeing everything through an Iran prism, the administration is missing key opportunities to advance U.S. interests in other countries. The demonstrations that have gripped Lebanon and Iraq are remarkable. These protesters are non-ideological, they're multi-ethnic and non-sectarian. So many of the things they are demanding of their governments to be responsive and accountable to everyday needs, to tackle rampant corruption, to create economic opportunities and public services that work for all of their citizens. These are exactly the kind of priorities that align with U.S. interests. But at this critical moment of change in both countries, the United States is missing the opportunity. Now, I agree that the United States has got to push back against Iranian influence in the Middle East, but we can't let our focus on Iran destabilize other parts of the region, especially when it seems like this Iran strategy isn't actually working in the first place. In Lebanon, where I was just a week ago, U.S. policy has long been aimed at reducing outside influence in that country. Well, over the past couple months, we've seen a lot of popular anger on the streets in Lebanon that's directed against political elites and outside actors like Hezbollah. And with their political power under threat, Hezbollah is putting thugs out to violently attack these nonviolent protesters, threatening to plunge the entire country into chaos. And yet at this critical moment, um, the United States is not supporting the very actor inside that country, the Lebanese armed forces, who have stepped up to defend the peaceful protesters. Instead, we withheld U.S. aid just at the moment that we should have been supporting them. When I was in Lebanon a week ago, no American official could give me a reason as to why the aid was held up or what the LAF needed to do to get it unstuck. And I agree with Senator Romney, we'll be seeking answers to those questions today. We're also missing an opportunity in Iraq. As with Lebanon, uh, Lebanon, I'm in awe of the courage of these protesters who have refused to back down from their peaceful demands, even when more than 400 people were killed when those demands were met with gunfire. Sadly, it seems that security forces in Iraq are looking more towards Iran on how to deal with peaceful protests rather than where they should be looking towards the LAF in Lebanon. And just as we've seen in Lebanon, much of the protesters' anger in Iraq is directed towards the established elites, including figures backed by Iran. So did the United States seize this opportunity, surging in our best and brightest diplomats to try to calm the situation and support popular demands for responsive government? No. We have largely stayed on the sidelines, hobbled by an unjustifiable decision to completely gut our diplomatic corps in Iraq. Now, I've warned that we were making a disastrous mistake by slashing the number of diplomats at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad to just 15 people doing principal diplomacy back in July. Today, the short-sightedness of that decision is painfully clear. 
Uh, and yet the administration apparently still thinks that somehow we can manage this crisis with a skeleton crew inside Baghdad. Um, we have a lot to discuss today. Um, I know the decisions that are uh, being made that I'm critical of are made far above the head of our uh, guest, uh, but he is an able, capable, and experienced diplomat in the region. I look forward to his testimony. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Uh, Joey Hood is Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. He has served as Deputy Chief of Mission in Iraq and in Kuwait, as well as Council General and Principal Officer in Dharan, Saudi Arabia. Prior to these assignments, Mr. Hood was Acting Director of the Office of Iranian Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. Mr. Hood has also served in Riyadh, where he coordinated U.S.-Saudi military cooperation, and in Asmara, where he was a liaison to rebel leaders from Sudan's Darfur region. He has also been assigned to U.S. embassies in Yemen and Qatar. I look forward to hearing his insights today. We'll now turn to our witness, Mr. Hood. Thank you for your willingness to testify here today. Your full statement will be included in the record without objection. So if you could please keep your remarks to no more than five minutes or so, we'd appreciate it so that we can engage in questions and vote. <laughs> With that, thank you, Mr. Hood. Thank you, Chairman Romney, uh, Ranking Member Murphy, uh, Senator Kane. Uh, thank you for the kind words, first of all. Uh, thank you for the kind words also about me in the Salt Lake Tribune back in uh, May. Uh, my family appreciated that as well. Uh, but uh, I'm honored to appear uh, before you today to discuss the situation in Iraq and Lebanon and the ways in which the United States is and, and can help the citizens of those countries achieve the stability, security, and economic prosperity that their leaders have not delivered. People across the region, in particular its youth, wish to overcome the economic and political stagnation that has left many of them no better off today than they were 10 years ago. In Iraq, the demonstrations are also fueled by anger over Iran's destabilizing influence. As recently as last weekend, Iran's chief exporter of terrorism, Qasem Soleimani, was widely reported to have been in Baghdad once again meeting with, threatening, and conjoling politicians. Iran has exploited the dysfunction not just within the Iraqi body, body politic, but also in Lebanon. Iran's support to the terrorist group Hezbollah has contributed to the group's ability to put its own interests over those of the nation. In Iraq, people are demanding an end to Iran's mafioso tactics, such as arming terrorist groups like Ata'ib Hezbollah, calling the shots among political party bosses, dumping agricultural goods on Iraqi markets, and peddling counterfeit or expired pharmaceuticals. In this context, it's imperative that the United States remain, as Secretary Pompeo has said, a force for good across the region. In stark contrast to Iran, the United States has partnered with the Lebanese people through a range of humanitarian, economic, and security assistance. Since 2006, we've provided more than $2 billion to strengthen the Lebanese armed forces. In fiscal year 2018, we obligated and are currently expending $115 million in economic support funds to promote employment, good governance, and economic growth. Since the start of the Syrian crisis, we've also provided over $2.3 billion in humanitarian assistance for refugees and the people who host them, including food, shelter, water, medical care, education, and psychological services. That's what we mean when we say America is a force for good in Lebanon. In Iraq, we remain a steadfast partner of the Iraqi people. 
With our coalition partners, we continue to ensure that the Iraqi security forces can ensure the enduring defeat of ISIS. As the country's largest humanitarian donor, we've also provided more than $2 billion in food, water, medicine, and shelter since 2014 alone. We're also the largest donor to stabilization, funding the rehabilitation of more than 500 schools, 100 health centers, and 50 water treatment plants so far. We're also the largest donor to demining, having removed thousands of explosive hazards so people can return to their homes. That's what we mean when we say we're a force for good in Iraq. And our relationship with Iraqis remains vital for U.S. national interests. Bolstering Iraq as a sovereign, stable, united, and democratic partner of the United States with a viable Kurdistan region as a component of it continues to be our principal objective. If we see Iraqi leaders willing to address the demands of their people, we'll join with the UN and others to support badly needed electoral and economic reforms. And as Secretary Pompeo said recently, we won't hesitate to use tools such as designations under the Global Magnitsky Act to sanction individuals who are stealing the public wealth of the Iraqi people and killing or wounding peaceful protesters. The popular protests underway today show that people are finally fed up with the damage that corruption causes. We're offering to partner with those who want to unlock the potential of people across the region because we understand that a country is most successful when its people are secure, prosperous, and free. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Hood. Now we'll uh, turn to questions. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, First of all, as we look at the protests that are going on, surely the, the state of the economy uh, is one of the reasons for the anger on the part of uh, particularly many of the young protesters. Um, that economy has been buffeted by the decline in tourism, uh, by the fact that, that Syria next door is in turmoil, um, and, and apparently remittances from Lebanese workers working in Saudi Arabia or other places throughout the Middle East uh, have declined precipitously. Is there a, a realistic uh, prospect of, of economic vitality that will meet the, the demands of these, of these protesters? Uh, yes, Senator, in a word. Uh, Lebanon is capable of uh, much better economic performance. But we need to see major reforms. Uh, some of these are quite simple. Uh, it's about literally picking up the trash. I mean, uh, you were governor of Massachusetts. You understand better than most probably what kind of services a government has to provide to uh, meet the basic needs of its citizens. And it's just not happening in Lebanon. Uh, you'll recall a couple of years ago, maybe the You Stink uh, protests over the trash collection problem. Some of these are basic fixes. Uh, they're not difficult to do, but uh, the leaders have to be committed to that. And if they're not committed to basic and wide-ranging reform, then it doesn't really matter what faces they put in the government. It'll be like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. So that's what we're pushing for is real reform. What, what kind of confidence do you have in, in the new leadership that's in, in Lebanon? And is there a capacity to really form a new government? Uh, based upon your perspective? Right now, there isn't a new government. They're still in the caretaker mode. Uh, the president only just today, uh, I saw uh, as I was coming in here, uh, called for binding parliamentary uh, 
uh, binding negotiations between the parties for uh, uh, formation of a new government. There's no telling how long that's going to take. The last time they formed a government, it was nine months. Uh, one would hope that with the pressure from the street, they will have gotten the message that they need to act quickly and they need to act seriously on reform. And if they do, you mentioned in your opening uh, remarks, Senator, that they have uh, CEDRA funding of over $11 billion waiting to help. But there's no Western country that's going to uh, jump in there and say, uh, we're going to bail you out this time once again, even though you haven't gotten the message from your people and even though you haven't committed to reform. As you know, Congress appropriated $105 million to support LAF and, and their effort there. Uh, why was that held up? Senator, I can't get into the internal deliberations. Uh, it's true that uh, bureaucratic processes often work more slowly than we'd like them to. Uh, I'm daily frustrated with that myself. Uh, but uh, what I can say is that no delivery of material, no assistance was uh, delayed or prevented from going to the LAF. Um, because of these internal de deliberations. The money has been approved for expenditure, and now we're in the process of uh, what you normally do for FMF funding, letters of request, letters of offer uh, and assurance, and so forth. Are, are you saying that the delay was due, due to bureaucratic uh, processes as opposed to uh, policy making from the highest levels of, of our government? Yes, sir. Internal deliberations, policy deliberations, uh, that often accompany uh, big decisions like this. I, I'm, uh, I'm told that uh, we, we have about a minute, so, or excuse me, about four minutes, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn uh, to Senator Kane and, and let him uh, ask some questions, and I'll, because I'm going I'm to be coming back. Okay. Th thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Senator Murphy. Okay. Just on that, so I get we're not asking about internal deliberations, but the funding was mandated by Congress. Yes, so we're appropriators, and we put it into an appropriations bill, and the president signed it. And so I think we're entitled to know the reason why it was held up. Internal deliberations are what were the discussions of the pros and cons and the backs and forth. I'm not interested in any of that. I, I, I want to know, was, was there a decision that was made in the White House to withhold these funds? Sir, I would refer you to the White House uh, for what uh, White House thinking is, but in terms of... Uh, Let me ask the, you it this way. Are you, are you aware of whether there was a decision at the White House to withhold the funds? Uh, I'm not aware of that decision. I, uh, what I am aware of is that there was lots of robust discussion about this before I arrived in my job and afterwards. Was the discussion about whether we would, you know ignore Congress, or what, what was Absolutely the discussion about? No, no sir. There so was then, then if, when Congress mandates it, what is the deliberation past that point? Uh, we need to make sure that uh, what we're providing and how we're providing it is um, uh, not only in line with uh, congressional appropriations, but also with um, the best stewardship of taxpayer money. And were, so were there concerns about Lebanon stewardship of these dollars, and what were those concerns? Uh, Senator, that is one of the things that we always uh, deliberate before we uh, undertake uh, assistance programs. We need to make sure that uh, military units, but, for example... But, but, but in, in this particular case, you're saying that one of the reasons for the delay was particular concerns about the LAF and their use of these funds? No, sir. I don't want my uh, comments to be construed that way. Uh, it's just that in general, when we talk about uh, providing assistance to 
any other country. We have all sorts of discussions about uh, making sure that- Do you know whether the timing of the release of the funds was dictated by the State Department or by the White House? Or by the DOD? Oh, sir, that's internal deliberations that I can't get into, unfortunately. So do you know the answer to the question, but you're, you don't want to testify to it? Uh, I wouldn't say that either, but uh, I, I can't uh, get into the uh, internal deliberations of how we're making the sausage on this uh, or, or any other particular decision. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm going to ask it for the record, too, because we're not asking about internal deliberations of something that's on your side of the aisle. When we specify that the dollars shall be spent in this way, and then we have to find out in the newspaper that the administration is withholding the dollars against our mandate, you can understand the concern that we have. One, one other question. You talked about the administration's willingness to use the Global Magnitsky Act, and you have used it in some instances, but this committee uh, sent a letter to the administration about the Global Magnitsky Act and, um, and the uh, Crown Prince in Saudi Arabia with respect to the murder of Virginia resident Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The administration refused to answer the question that the Global Magnitsky Act requires. Is this individual, was this individual culpable in a human rights violation? Do you have any knowledge about why the administration refused to answer the question that the Global Magnitsky Act uh, required uh, an answer for? Well, Senator, we uh, certainly share your concerns over uh, that uh, horrible murder. Um, but uh, I don't have a specific answer for you uh, on that today. I can assure you that we have held accountable more than 100 people uh, so far in that. Uh, Do you know whether there's any ongoing effort still to determine whether the Crown Prince was culpable in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi? Is uh, that matter a closed matter as far as the State Department is concerned? As far as I know, Senator, we are uh, not holding any individual outside the scope of who we would hold accountable for this. We're gonna, we're gonna Thank you, Mr. Chair. We're gonna have to take a break right now. We'll be back in approximately 10 minutes, so it's okay. a 10-minute uh, break. Thank right. you. Thank you. Mr. Hood, thank you for remaining here. We're back in session and I'm gonna turn to Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, um, Mr. Chairman. Um, let me just, uh, if I could, complete the series of questions you were getting from um, Senator Kane about the rationale for the hold. Uh, as you know, the reason that we are concerned in inquiring about the hold on funding for the Lebanese military is that uh, it had an impact. It is true that the aid is now flowing, but remember, we're outside the bounds of the fiscal year. Um, you know, we're in the next fiscal year and we're operating on a continuing resolution, but we went effectively um, into overtime uh, before this funding was released and people on the ground in Lebanon noticed it had an impact even though the funding was eventually released um, because at the very moment that the LAF was literally standing in between peaceful protesters and Hezbollah, there were stories circulating in the press about the fact that the United States was perhaps going to um, walk away from our funding commitment to them. At the very moment that they were advertising to the world um, how different they were than the other militaries in the region. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, I hope the administration knows that um, when it holds funding, whether it be for policy reasons, which I think we can agree are, are, are not allowable if those policies are not articulated in the statute, or for bureaucratic reasons, it has an effect. Um, but let me just get back to that fine point. I mean, you would agree that the administration cannot attach conditions to funding, policy conditions to funding um, that 
are not in the underlying statute. I understand what you said. You need to make sure that the money is going um, to the right place. Um, but uh, it's Congress that decides whether there are going to be policy conditions on funding, whether it be to Lebanon or any other country. Um, is, isn't that correct? Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, yes, we uh, have not attached any policy conditions on this funding. Uh, and uh, no expenditures or deliveries or purchases of military materiel were delayed. So uh, we explained to uh, Lebanese officials that this was just part of our internal process. We remain committed to our longstanding partnership with them. As I said earlier, uh, it, no one working in the bureaucracy is happy with uh, the speed at which we do things, but uh, in this case, uh, the delay was not related to uh, anything having to do with the protests. The uh, Lebanese armed forces, as you said, have shown themselves to be a model for security forces in the region with how well they've done to protect the peaceful protesters uh, and how few uh, incidents they've been involved in uh, that have to be followed up on. We believe strongly that strengthening the capacity of the LAF is critical to securing Lebanon's borders defending its sovereignty and preserving its stability. And so that's why uh, we all made sure as an interagency that nothing was delayed, uh, no expenditures, no purchases, no deliveries. Uh, and uh, that, uh, as I said, the, uh, the uh, funding has been approved. Um, so thank you for that statement in support of our continued partnership and training with the LAF. You would agree that they have made remarkable progress um, over the course of the last decade in um, improving uh, their ability to provide security for the people of Lebanon and securing the borders, something that um, was not done by the Lebanese military only a short time uh, ago. You would assess that they've made tre tremendous progress in terms of professionalization and capability. That's right, Senator, uh, largely due to our assistance. Uh, just a little over a decade ago, it was the Syrian military that was on the borders of Lebanon. Now it's the Lebanese Armed Forces. Uh, we uh, haven't seen a substantial ISIS presence in Lebanon, even though there was one directly over the border, uh, because of the professionalism and the capability of the Lebanese Armed Forces. Uh, they have uh, coordinated with us on a number of counterterrorism operations that have taken down a number of plots uh, that were not able to see their way to fruition. Uh, and as uh, I pointed out again earlier, and it bears emphasizing, their role in protecting the peaceful protesters from Hezbollah thugs and Amal thugs has been absolutely uh, extraordinary. Um, and last question on this topic. Um, what would be the impact if the, the, the capabilities of the LAF were, were severely curtailed. Um, Hezbollah's claim is that they are the only legitimate defender of the people of Lebanon. And every uh, day and week that the LAF becomes more capable of defending the country, um, my impression is that it is a blow to Hezbollah's argument uh, that, that only they can be trusted with defending the security of that nation. My impression, especially having spent some time on the ground there, is that if the LAF is weakened, um, then it accrues to the benefit of, uh, of, of Hezbollah. They seem to be the counterweight. 
You've got it absolutely right, Senator. Let's enter your uh, remarks as my answer to your uh, <laughs> remarks. Uh, no, you're, you're exactly right. Um, and you see people out in the streets right now uh, who are uh, starting to say, well, look, we do have a pretty good army. Uh, we do have uh, uh, a non-sectarian, non-ideological, uh, pan-Lebanese institution that is doing a really good job defending us and our rights to raise our voices. And so the more that that happens, uh, the less legitimate that uh, our Hezbollah's arguments for having their own uh, armed force uh, right alongside the legitimate institutions of the state. Let me turn to Iraq. Um, can you, um, what level of, uh, of detail can you provide to the committee about the drawdown of diplomatic presence in uh, Baghdad? The reports that I stated at the outset suggest that there are um, perhaps six USAID staffers and maybe over a dozen diplomats. Um, what is our presence today in, what is our, what is our diplomatic and USAID presence today uh, in Baghdad, and and how does that compare uh, to what it was, you know, perhaps when you showed up on the ground there several years ago? Sir, primarily for uh, security reasons, we don't get into discussions of um, specific numbers, but uh, I have personally come up and uh, briefed um, uh, staff members of uh, the SFR SFRC and the SACFO, and uh, I would be willing to do so again. Uh, in uh, as much detail as uh, they would like. Um, but we believe that the numbers that we have now are exactly what we need, no more, no less, to get the mission accomplished. Uh, and that is something that we worked, and I personally worked very hard on uh, before I left, to get those numbers right. We're always reviewing our numbers, uh, uh, weighing security risks, weighing uh, what the mission is before us, uh, in every high threat post, uh, but especially in Iraq. Uh, but uh, to emphasize again, we believe that we've got exactly the right number there that we need to get the mission done. And, and they're doing a tremendous job under Ambassador Tuller's leadership, having lots and lots of meetings with um, uh, Iraqis from across the spectrum, including those in Tahrir Square. And they're sending lots of good reporting back to us. I'd like to welcome my senator, <laughs> Senator well, Shaheen. Um, uh, okay, so I will I will take your uh, your reservation for sharing numbers with us in open session. Um, but as you know, Iraq has always been a very dangerous post, and we are so thankful for um, both the military and diplomatic personnel who are willing to put their lives at risk uh, by serving in a place where you are constantly under threat of attack. But it is a little hard to sort of accept as the rationale for the drawdown the security risk, given the fact that I think we can all agree that the security risk was probably much higher during a time in which we were in active combat in uh, large parts of the country and large parts of the capital city, and yet we managed to have thousands of personnel there. And maybe it's coincidental that the political and security situation has unraveled in Iraq at the exact same moment that our diplomatic drawdown has happened, but maybe it's not. Maybe the fact that we don't have the personnel there that we used to in order to go out and try to convince our friends to make the right decisions when encountering difficulty um, is in fact correlated. And so, again, I understand you can't share with us the 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 
intel on the security threats, but it, it, isn't it true that Iraq has always been a place where there was threat of attack against diplomatic personnel, and we were able to manage that threat because we thought it was so important to have um, hundreds of diplomats rather than a handful of diplomats. Um, if we could do it in 2006 and 2007, why can't we manage that security risk uh, today? Well, Senator, a few points on that. Uh, compared to 2006 and 2007, we had probably 150,000 American troops in the country, which is a very different story than today. Uh, we, uh, from time to time, uh, review our uh, numbers and our capabilities and our mission set in front of us. And uh, that's what we did in Iraq. We believe that we've got the right mix of people there. Now, I would invite you uh, to visit again. Uh, I know all three of, the, of you on the committee right now uh, have been out there uh, this year. And I think it's just invaluable to have you out there to help brief you on these things in detail. Uh, I can say the ambassador and his team are as active as ever. Uh, they're uh, just making even more meetings than ever before. Uh, and having just as much impact as ever before. So I, th I think that their capability is there. And if he were to ask us uh, for more capabilities in this area or that area, uh, we certainly would not be in a position to say no. All right, well, let me just submit that I disagree with you. I do not think you can cover the panoply of threats um, uh, in that country uh, presented to us and to our allies with the numbers that you have. I do think there's a correlation uh, between uh, the two. And the last comment I'll make before turning it over is uh, that I accept your invitation. Um, I thank you for um, how hard you worked to make Senator Romney's uh, and, and my visit productive. But I will also say it's never been harder today um, it's never been harder than today for members of the Senate or Congress to visit Iraq. Um, the, this administration is making it very difficult uh, for members to get there and do the kind of oversight that we would like when we were there. We were able to see our diplomatic personnel, but we were not able to go and visit our military personnel. Um, and so that is, and I've heard from other members uh, expressing uh, this, this same frustration with our ability to see how our taxpayer dollars are being spent there. And again, I'm speaking above your pay grade, but I just think it's important to state for the record that many members of the Congress would like to be there, would like to accept that invitation, um, but find it often hard to do uh, given um, some of the constraints. But um, I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Mr. Hood. It's very nice to have you here. Thank you for your service and uh, for being such a great host when Senator Reid and I visited Iraq and Senator Jones. And uh, we're very proud of your service in New Hampshire and um, are glad you're where you are. I, I appreciate your pointing out in your opening remarks the situation of Amr Fakuri, who, as you know, is a constituent of mine from New Hampshire and an American citizen who has been illegally detained in Lebanon since September the 12th. Um, he is currently hospitalized as an, and is in very serious medical condition. Would you agree that a country or official that imprisons an innocent individual without charge for months on end and doesn't allow the prisoner any appropriate due process to prove their innocence is committing a human rights violation? Well, thank you for the question, uh, Senator Shaheen. Uh, we have no higher calling than to protect American citizens living and traveling overseas. 
Uh, every day, the U.S. Embassy team in Beirut is working very hard to secure the release of the uh, unjustly detained Amr Fukhuri. Uh, they last visited him uh, just today and uh, gave me a report that I will uh, share with you if we have time afterwards. Uh, and uh, I spoke with Ambassador Richard as well on the phone uh, earlier today. Uh, she follows the case daily uh, at a very, uh, in a very personal way. Anyone in New Hampshire's seacoast region who loves Middle Eastern food, as I do, uh, is a fan of Little Lebanon to go. Uh, and I know that Mr. Fahouri's customers miss him, his family misses him. And we hope to see him come home uh, very, very soon. You're absolutely right that um, there are grave concerns about uh, the process uh, and, and the way he's being treated. Um, but we are uh, making this our absolute highest priority at the embassy and uh, here at the State Department. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I very much appreciate all the assistance from Ambassador Richard. And I've spoken with Deputy Secretary Sullivan. I know that at the highest levels of our State Department, people have been concerned about Mr. Fakuri. Um, and I believe that if he dies in the custody of Lebanese officials, that Lebanon should be subject to sanctions under Section 7031C of the State Department of Foreign Operations Act, which states, and I quote, any officials of foreign governments and their immediate family members about whom the Secretary of State has credible information have been involved in a gross violation of human rights shall be ineligible for entry into the United States. Um, I think this is a very serious situation that has not been taken seriously by the officials of the Lebanese government, and they need to be on notice that we are looking very carefully and closely at what they're doing. Um, Mr. Chairman, I would like to enter into the record documents that have been provided by Mr. Fakuri's lawyer that clearly indicate that he is not the individual that the Lebanese and Hezbollah-linked papers allege him to be. Um, Mr. Hood, I look forward to working with you, with Ambassador Richard, with Secretary Pompeo, and doing, continuing to do everything we can to ensure that Mr. Fakuri gets back home. Um, again, I think his health is very critical, and we do not want a situation where he dies in Lebanese custody. That would not be good, um, obviously, for Lebanon, for the United States, and it would be a tragedy for Mr. Fakuri and his family. Here, here. Um, Mr. Chairman, I, I, so I want to go on to, to some of the other concerns that Lebanon is confronting right now with unrest, because one of the things that I think we're seeing is that Hezbollah and Iran view the protests in Lebanon as a threat to their influence within the country. And, the reports that I've seen suggest that the Lebanese people are very concerned about what Hezbollah is doing there and the continued corruption that they're seeing in the country, and that um, there will be efforts on the part of Hezbollah to influence the, any new cabinet and government that is formed. So can you talk about what we're doing to try to address the Iranian and Hezbollah influence in Lebanon as they look to form a new government? Well, uh, Senator, as I said in my opening statement, we uh, view 
Iran's role in both of these countries as um, uh, very unhelpful. And uh, the people agree with that assessment. We think uh, one of the major ways that we can try to uh, diminish that is through our maximum pressure campaign, which is denying the regime in Tehran the revenues that it used to have to fund groups like uh, Hezbollah and Kata'ib Hezbollah and the Houthis and others. Uh, you know, for the first time ever recently, Nas uh, Hassan Nasrallah had to go on TV mm -hmm. and do a telethon to try to get donations for Hezbollah. Uh, that's a sign that uh, the decreasing revenues in Tehran are having an effect on his funding. Uh, and that's, I think, a very appropriate use of our, uh, the power of our financial system, the power of our sanctions. Uh, we're also uh, using our bully pulpit. We're calling out uh, this activity. Uh, and we're naming and shaming. We're using the legislative authorities that we have to sanction individuals. Something like more than a thousand individuals and organizations just in the past couple of years we've sanctioned with regard to Iran and its malign activities throughout the region. So this is obviously having an effect on the pocketbook and uh, the people themselves are standing up and saying, you know, I know how life looks on the outside. I know what uh, people in the United Arab Emirates live like, for example. I don't have to live like this. I don't have to live under this sort of condition. And uh, I think they're gaining inspiration as well from each other and from the protests in Iran, which we haven't talked about, but which have been uh, just as terrible in terms of their repression and possibly more. We can't know exactly how many people have been killed there because of the throttling of the internet and the regime... Um, uh, keeping such a blackout, but it's clear that it was, uh, it's bad what's going on there. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because, the re again, the re news reports suggest that these are the worst protests in Iran since 1979 um, and that close to 800 people that we know about have been killed by the regime. Um, are there ways in which we can um, try and address the the Iranian people who are being repressed such that they understand that, that there is um, an interest in seeing that they have some opportunities in the future to ultimately get out from under the current leadership? Absolutely, Senator. Uh, the Secretary, uh, the President uh, have been very clear in standing with the Iranian people who are we shouldn't forget the longest suffering victims of this regime. Uh, we're committed to promoting accountability. I've talked about the sanctions that we've levied. Uh, we will continue to make public statements, uh, not just from our own um, podium, but from uh, cooperation in UN forums uh, to strengthen the international community's resolve. And we do see that, um, you know, Whatever our disagreements may be uh, on policy approaches, the Europeans are taking some similar steps. Uh, Denmark and uh, France and uh, the Netherlands uh, went to the European Union to get sanctions levied on the Iranians for assassination plots that, were, that had taken place in their countries. Uh, they came out, uh, France, Germany, and, and Britain came out and condemned uh, the uh, September 14th missile attacks on, uh, on Saudi Arabia. Uh, so, you know, 
we have to be careful uh, not to try to portray these protests as pro-American. I think they're pro-Iranian. You know, they are nationalists. They want to be living like normal people. And we hold out a great hope uh, as a force for good, as I talked about earlier. For countries like Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, uh, we've got a $22 trillion economy. We've got a lot of private investment that could go forward. We've got a lot of uh, programs and assistance that we could provide uh, if they're just ready to start acting like a normal government again. And that's the ho hope that we hold out. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Um, I'm going to ask a couple of questions, uh, then I'm going to leave. And uh, Senator Murphy is going to ask questions, and then he's going to gavel us out. <laughs> and uh, he may never gavel you out, but uh, we'll see. Um, a couple of things. Turning to, uh, to Iraq and the protests there, uh, what is the administration's posture with regards to the protesters uh, in, uh, in Iraq? Are we uh, supportive of their effort? Are we uh, uh, helping uh, the protesters? Are we opposed to the protesters? Or what, exactly what is our posture with regards to uh, what's happening in, in, uh, in, in Iraq? And I say that because when we were there with you some months ago, there was a perspective that given energy shortages and, and likely uh, power blackouts that there would be protests during the summer. But there, I don't think there was any uh, indication at that time that protests would be going on through November, that hundreds of people would be killed, uh, and that there was no end in sight to these protests. So it's obviously taken on a different character than what we were thinking about, or at least the government of Iraq was thinking about when we were there. What is your perspective, and what, what is the impetus for these, uh, these protests, and what is our national uh, uh, policy with regards to them? Well, Senator, uh, we absolutely support uh, the protesters' right to peacefully demonstrate and express themselves. Uh, we also strongly support and have talked about this uh, many times at the highest levels from Secretary Pompeo on down. Uh, we uh, think that they have a right to free media. Uh, as you may have seen, the government shut down nine television stations last week. Uh, they've been, uh, there have been you know, mysterious third parties uh, that have raided um, uh, media headquarters and that have harassed uh, reporters and other journalists. And uh, we're calling this out at every opportunity. Uh, we, again, like in Lebanon, have to be careful not to uh, portray these protesters as pro-American uh, because they don't want to be. They want to be seen as uh, Iraqis first and foremost. And uh, so we extend to them this offer of uh, being a force for good, a partnership uh, with uh, leaders that they want to see, we think, just like we do, uh, in, in putting in place reforms that would allow the economy to open up and grow, uh, and uh, for people to get uh, meaningful jobs, and uh, for the government to just do its job uh, providing services. So uh, we have been calling for all of this uh, at the highest levels, making it clear to them that we support their legitimate rights, and calling out the government and individuals, uh, both privately and publicly, when we see that they are not holding up um, uh, those rights. Uh, we will hold accountable those individuals over time as we find out who's responsible for killing and wounding uh, the protesters. Uh, and uh, you know, we'll continue to do that. 
but we do hope that soon we'll get partners in the Iraqi government throughout the Iraqi government that are willing to work with us on real reform. There are some conflicting reports about who it is that's been killing protesters. Uh, some have indicated that perhaps Iranian sharpshooters have done so. Others, of course, point to the, the, the Iraqi military itself. Do you have any uh, perspective on, on who might be responsible at this stage for the hundreds of deaths that have been reported? Uh, yes, sir, and no, sir. Uh, yes, in the sense that uh, there have been uh, Iraqi military leaders uh, and units implicated, such as in the deaths of uh, upwards of 40 people in Nasiriyah last weekend. Uh, that uh, general, as I understand it, has been arrested and brought up on charges. Um, but uh, there are many other cases where uh, it's not entirely clear who's doing what. Uh, you know, some of the Iranian-supported proxies in Iraq are very good at hiding uh, their affiliations. You see them in, you know, black uniforms uh, with no insignia uh, in, the, in the videos. But we have Secretary Pompeo and, and Special Representative Hook have called for uh, Iraqis to share with us the videos and pictures that they have so that we can go through those and we can uh, try to uh, help identify those people and hold them accountable, even if Iraqi government leaders now or in the future don't want to. Can you take over? Thank you. Uh, I, I'm going to ask Senator Cruz to take over and ask any questions he might have. Uh, I need to go vote, and I hope okay. to see you again soon. Uh, I hope you'll be back, Senator. Well, thank you, Mr. Hood. And... Uh, Thank you for your testimony. Thank you for being here. Uh, let's start by, by talking about Lebanon. Uh, over the past decade, uh, the United States has spent over $2 billion in aid to the government of Lebanon, uh, and specifically to the Lebanese Armed Forces. Uh, according to Congress, the goal of funding the Lebanese Army is so that the Army can meet its obligations under UN Security Council Resolution 1701 to disarm Hezbollah. Uh, according to the administration, the goal of supporting the government is to build a free, democratic, U.S.-oriented uh, in governmental institution in Lebanon. Uh, but by any measure, our policy is failing right now. Lebanon's government institutions have disintegrated. The ministries that are still running are marked by endemic corruption. And Hezbollah has amassed over 100,000 rockets and missiles pointed at Israel and regularly moves personnel and weapons into Syria. Hezbollah functionally runs major ports and parts of Beirut's international airport. I have a couple questions I want to ask. Number one, Congress has authorized the administration to distribute security assistance to the Lebanese Armed Forces so that they can meet their obligations under UN Security Council Resolution 1701 to disarm groups south of the Latani River, by which the resolution meant Hezbollah. What percent of our security assistance to the Army has gone to disarming Hezbollah in recent years? Thank you, Senator, uh, for the question. We think that uh, we would uh, disagree with your assessment that our policy is uh, failing, especially when it comes to the Lebanese Armed Forces. I think we see that no more starkly than in the streets as we speak, where uh, the LAF is 
regularly getting in between Hezbollah thugs and Amal thugs and the peaceful protesters and protecting them. Uh, we see the people uh, uh, raising their voices, uh, Shia for the first time, saying, Hezbollah is not what I want. Uh, I want the Lebanese armed forces. I want something that's non-sectarian, non-ideological, pan-Lebanese, uh, something that is responsive to our elected leaders and not what we see with Hezbollah and its armed wings. Um, so I think that uh, we're actually seeing a Lebanese armed forces that's coming into its own now vis-a-vis uh, -vis Hezbollah. It's a political decision in that country as to whether uh, they want to uh, send that army into direct combat with Hezbollah. It's not our decision. Uh, I can understand, however, that uh, the Lebanese, after so many years of bloody civil war, want to try to uh, resolve this problem uh, by uh, as peacefully as they can. Um, they probably understand as better as well as anyone uh, that uh, the challenge that they face in doing that. So our best approach is to make sure that the LAF remains uh, strong and becomes even stronger in the face of Hezbollah, which is now backed into a corner with its revenues going down uh, because Tehran is squeezed for uh, funding and with the people out in the streets saying, this is not what we want to see anymore. I, I want to make sure I understand your testimony. Uh, you view and the administration views Lebanon as a success story? We, review, we view the Lebanese armed forces uh, and our investment in it as a succeeding investment. Uh, we're not there yet, but it is uh, money that is so far well spent. If you look back a little over a decade, it was the Syrians that were on the border uh, of Lebanon. Now it's the Lebanese armed forces. Uh, they regularly go into the Bekaa Valley. Uh, they uh, conduct operations. They don't uh, answer to the orders of Hezbollah. Uh, and, and they are growing in their capacity. So I would say that investment is uh, a success. Well, let me go back to my, to my initial question, which, which you didn't answer. Uh, what percent of our security assistance to the army has actually gone to disarming Hezbollah in recent years? Senator, I'm not aware that the Lebanese government has directed the armed forces to go and uh, disarm Hezbollah. That is a decision for them to make and not for us. But uh, they, so we don't have any say on, on what happens with Hezbollah. That's that's not. There's no U.S. policy on Hezbollah. Is that what you're saying? There is absolutely a U.S. policy on Hezbollah. We're taking uh, every measure that we can uh, to squeeze uh, its funding out by uh, our maximum pressure campaign on uh, the regime in Tehran, and uh, designating individuals and institutions such as the Jamal Trust Bank that have any role in moving people or money on behalf of Hezbollah. And we see that this is having uh, a real effect. But the biggest effect... So am I, but I under, am I understanding your testimony correct that right now none of our funds is going to disarming Hezbollah? I would say, Senator, that that is not a decision for us to take on behalf of the Lebanese government. Uh, but what we How many see, billions of dollars have we given them? At, at, at some point, we get to make some decisions when we're writing really big checks. Uh, this is, as I was reminded earlier, uh, policy conditions on assistance are the domain of Congress. So uh, I will 
Leave that but, to you. But, but apparently, the, the, you're, you're telling me the administration's policy is to be agnostic, whether they are combating Hezbollah, whether they are funding Hezbollah, whether they're in bed with Hezbollah. That, that, are, you, are you telling me the administration has no views? It's just, hey, whatever, whatever floats your boat? <laughs> no, Senator. What I'm saying is we think we're making uh, strategic investments in this non-sectarian, non-ideological, highly effective uh, security force, and that we need to continue doing that uh, because the strategy is working. Uh, we've got people out in the streets right now uh, saying, this is the security force we want to see. This is the legitimate face of the Lebanese government, not Hezbollah. And I think that's where we all want to be. What would you say is the role of Hezbollah right now within the LAF and within the governmental institutions such as they exist in Lebanon? Senator, I would say the role is uh, they're trying to maintain the status quo. They want to maintain a corrupt system uh, over which they have great influence so that they can uh, use ministries as a source of revenue rather than a way to provide services to the people. And so uh, I think that's what the people are reacting to, and they're saying uh, no more. Uh, this is not what our government is um, supposed to be. And uh, I think they would like to have influence over the Lebanese armed forces. They're not. That's why um, in October you saw the LAF get in front of a bunch of uh, Hezbollah thugs on motorcycles and say, you're not coming in here to uh, terrorize the protesters. We saw it again just a couple of uh, weeks ago uh, where they uh, did the same thing. They got in between uh, the Hezbollah thugs and the protesters and said, this isn't happening today. And so, well, well let, me, let me be clear on something. You, you referenced our maximum pressure campaign on Iran, and I am a vocal proponent of maximum pressure, meaning maximum pressure on Iran. At the same time, and for the same reasons, in Lebanon and elsewhere, we should not be funding and we should not be supporting people who want to kill us. And Hezbollah falls into that camp of people who want to kill us and kill our friends and allies. And so let me encourage the administration... Uh, to focus on those core priorities more than, th than I fear you are doing, doing now. Well, let me assure you, Senator, that our uh, commitment to the security of uh, friends in the Middle East, especially the state of Israel, is uh, unshakable. And uh, we will continue to work with them and with others uh, to make sure that uh, the Iranians uh, are not able to carry out their agenda without cost anywhere in the region. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator Cruz. Um, I, I think we all share in the objective of lessening Hezbollah's influence in Lebanon. And let me sort of restate um, in a different way a question I asked you uh, earlier. It is the State Department's belief that uh, helping to stand up the LAF as an independent, non-sectarian uh, guarantor of security in Lebanon is a part of our strategy um, to decrease the influence of Hezbollah inside Lebanon. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, I just have a couple additional questions to close out. Um, so there was a, a real sense when I was on the ground there a week ago um, that um, this crisis of leadership couldn't last much longer. 
and that those nations that have typically stood by the side of Lebanon, the United States at the top of that list, needed to play a more active role in trying to help resolve it. There are reports you mentioned, literally as you were coming in to see us today, that there may be um, a, you know, a, a pending breakthrough, a businessman who is being put forward as perhaps the next prime minister. Um, but what role do you think it's appropriate for the United States and, and others to play uh, in trying to help bring an end to this moment of political instability? And how confident are you that we're on the same page with other international players? It obviously worries many of us when we see the president um, departing um, in a huff from a NATO summit at the way that he was treated by the exact allies that we're supposed to be talking to about uh, how we land a very difficult political crisis in Lebanon. How confident are you that we're working in a multilateral way uh, to try to help end this leadership crisis in a country that matters so much to our interests? Senator, I'm uh, very confident that we're working multilaterally in an effective way. In fact, uh, Assistant Secretary Schenker is uh, right now on a trip uh, to um, consult with uh, uh, British counterparts. Last week he was in France and uh, Italy uh, doing the same thing with counterparts there. Uh, and we believe that they do share our uh, goal of making sure that whatever government uh, comes along next in Lebanon is not just a set of pretty faces, but is uh, a group that is com entirely committed to real reform and is backed up by those sectarian leaders and others who have influence in the country, whether we like it or not, with a real commitment to reform. Because if they don't have that commitment, then it really doesn't matter who they put in what chair. But what we're proposing, uh, the way we're trying to help is not by saying, pick this one and not that one, but by holding out that hand and saying, we've got a $22 trillion economy here. We've got a pretty robust uh, assistance budget, thanks to the Congress. We've got uh, a lot of tools and levers that we can use to help a reform-minded government. And so take our hand. Take that $11 billion in CEDRA funding. Take the, other, uh, the, the private investments that we would be able to advocate for if the uh, environment allowed for it. One last question on Iraq, and I'm sorry if this ground has been covered, tell me if it has been, but um, you know, we've spent uh, $5 billion to train Iraqi security forces, and today we're spending you know, about three or four times as much money on security assistance as we are in reconstruction, rebuilding, and economic aid, which I don't understand. I don't understand the justification for um, that division of funding. Um, but. Uh, we now are seeing reports that it may be that U.S. trained units were amongst those involved in the killing of around 400 civilian protesters. I mean, we need to make sure that our dollars are not going to security forces that are firing on peaceful protesters. Um, what is being done about accountability mm -hmm. um, for the decisions that were made to turn U.S., potentially turn U.S.-trained and U.S.-funded forces on protesters in Iraq? I appreciate that question, Senator, uh, because we have a uh, full-time staff dedicated to Leahy law vetting uh, to figure out exactly uh, the answer to this question. Uh, and that person works, you know, 50, 60 hours a week uh, with uh, other colleagues just on this very question. 
uh, I'm looking at one of the individuals that's, uh, that has been responsible for that right now, uh, sitting behind you, John Whedon. Um, they do a tremendous job. Uh, it's a lot of hard work, a lot of slogging through the data uh, and making important decisions and recommendations. Uh, this is exactly the kind of uh, policy uh, oversight and policy deliberations I was uh, trying to explain to Senator Kane earlier that we go through uh, for this sort of funding. Uh, so rest assured, we will take it very seriously. We are taking it very seriously. And uh, we will make sure, as we have done in the past, in Iraq and elsewhere, that uh, any unit that is, or leader that is implicated uh, uh, in human rights abuses will be barred from our assistance through the Leahy Law. Well, this is a perilous moment, but it's a moment that also is flush with opportunity. These are uh, protesters who are not seeking to increase the ideological divides and separation in the region. They're seeking to unite um, folks around a, a common set of uh, good governance and uh, economic uh, demands. Uh, and I think you and those that work with you are doing a very, very a good job amidst difficult circumstances, but one of those circumstances is the person you work for who is sending mixed messages every single day about whether we support or don't support these protesters. The idea that the president was asked whether we supported the protests in Iran and said that he didn't want to get into it, but the answer was no, only to correct himself an hour later makes your job and others um, uh, immensely, immensely difficult and sends a signal uh, of uh, mixed policy to the region that you know ultimately may mean that we miss this opportunity to support these, um, I think, very, very promising protest movements. But uh, thank you for the good work that you do. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Uh, Mr. Hood, I've just got a couple more questions for you. Uh, one is, is what Iran's involvement is now with the protests in Iraq. Um, I, I think the modus operandi of uh, Iran in circumstances where there's turmoil is to step in and try and provide um, uh, the, uh, the, I'll call it help, with quotation marks around the word help, that the, that the government uh, might be looking for. Uh, they might step in and try and take advantage of the circumstance to, to strengthen their hand with the government uh, and to aid in repression of, of violence, which they may be helping to stimulate in some respects. Uh, what, what is our sense of their involvement in these protests occurring in, in Iraq today? Well, Senator, it's clear that they don't want things to change. Uh, this um, uh, setup that they've got in Iraq now where they've got uh, proxy uh, armed groups that also have uh, political parties, that also have economic offices, uh, you know, it's a pretty good deal for them. Uh, but the Iraqi people are standing up and saying, no, this doesn't work for me anymore. Um, and so, as I said earlier, we saw Qasem Soleimani in Baghdad uh, just uh, a few days ago meeting with political party leaders. This is completely abnormal for uh, the special forces commander of some other country to swoop in and be uh, caucusing with uh, political party leaders in another country. Uh, it's up to those party leaders and Iraqi, uh, Iraqis of all stripes to stand up and say, this doesn't work for me anymore. And we see a substantial number of people doing that on the streets right now at great peril to their own lives, as you pointed out. So um, we think that um, Iran is uh, trying to play its usual role of uh, unacceptable influence, but Iraqis are pushing back. And what remains to be seen now is how Iraqi leaders will respond to that uh, malign influence. Uh, so far, it doesn't seem that they're entirely getting the message from the street, but we hope that they do. 
Well, well given the extent of our financial and, uh, and personnel commitment to their country, you would anticipate that we could have some influence about whether or not they're going to be influenced by uh, an individual from Iran of that nature, mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, indicating to them that, that that kind of behavior is unacceptable, that that kind of involvement in, uh, and participation with them is unacceptable to us, and that, that, uh, that our continuing support uh, relies uh, upon them being an independent nation, right. but not being one that's under the thumb uh, of Iran and its most malign uh, influence. Uh, one more simple question, which is when we were last there, uh, we spoke about the fact that Iraq was uh, flaring billions of dollars of natural gas a year. Uh, here we are sending billions of dollars. They're flaring natural gas mm -hmm. worth billions of dollars. Uh, they were, uh, at that time, this was in May, they said they were at the cusp of signing an agreement with a uh, major corporation to uh, make the technology investments necessary to capture the value of that uh, natural gas. Has that contract been signed? And if not, why the heck not? <laughs> no, sir, it hasn't been. And uh, that's exactly our question every single day. Uh, we continue to get those messages, or continued to get those messages right up until the time the prime minister resigned. Um, but uh, the fact of the matter is it hasn't been signed. Uh, and um, you know we continue to push, and we would like to see negotiations restarted. Uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, my children breathed the uh, uh, fumes from that flared gas just across the border in Kuwait for five years. Uh, we feel it more acutely than uh, probably just about any other American. Um, but uh, the real people who suffer here are the Iraqis from all that money that's being uh, burned off into the atmosphere so that they can then purchase electricity from Iran. This is nuts. It's like carrying coals to Newcastle. And so, uh, you know, we've got the companies that are ready to do that work, uh, and they're ready to do it in a, non -trans in, in a very transparent, non-corrupt way, which is, I think, part of why it's a challenge to get this thing signed, because up until now, uh, a lot of party leaders and their Iranian backers haven't wanted to see a non-corrupt, non very transparent deal uh, be put in place for the benefit of the Iraqi people. That's not what they're working for. Uh, a lot of these guys are working for their own benefit and the benefit of Iran. It, it strikes me that um, uh, the administration has been uh, effective uh, from time to time employing our leverage where we have it, uh, such as on the Chinese, for instance, and saying, hey, we've got some leverage on you. You want access to our markets. We're going to put some tariffs on your products to get you to do some things that are important to us. Uh, that philosophy may want to be uh, employed as we deal with uh, Iraqi leadership. Uh, with regards to them solving, whether it's with an American company or some other company that has the technology to take advantage of that natural gas to say, guys, we're not going to keep funding at this level, perhaps, or we're not going to keep making the investments we're making if you don't get something done on this uh, in a hurry. And I would imagine that that would also be related to, uh, uh, to the uh, involvement of Iran and its malign actors uh, in the affairs of, of Iraq. Uh, Mr. Hood, thank you for being with us today. It's good to see you again. Appreciate your perspectives and help. And uh, until next time, this uh, hearing is adjourned. Thank you, sir. I'm supposed to say more than that. Uh, so so let, me, let me read the th other things I'm supposed to say at the very end here. So we'll, we'll open for just a moment. And, uh, and I know I have a, a script which is in here somewhere. Uh, there it is. We'll get to it. Perhaps. I'm supposed to keep the record open.
There we go. Thank you for our witness. <laughs> and for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. And with the thanks of the committee, the hearing is now adjourned again. <laughs> <laughs>